Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.25, Ella, The Darkness in the Midst of a Storm. I hope that you didn't all miss me too much after my fortnight break. I promise I didn't deliberately time it to leave you on such a cliffhanger. We left Ella last time in 1905, as a widow, after her husband Sergei had been assassinated by an anarchist revolutionary. Up till now, her life in Russia had been one of unimaginable luxury. But now, as we shall see, Ella decided to make a change. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who helped to keep this show on the air with their generosity and general awesomeness. I'd like to particularly thank my two newest patrons, Antia and Brooke. Thanks, guys. Your support is so appreciated. If you two would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The reaction of the Russian upper crust to Sergei's assassination was a profound shock and deep concern for his widow. Grand Duchess Zenya, a close friend of Ella's, wrote, quote, They killed poor Uncle Sergei this afternoon. It is simply appalling. Appalling, terrible, sad and shameful. No, it is simply not possible. Poor Ella, how terribly sorry I feel for her. The Tsar himself noted in his diary, quote, A terrible crime was perpetrated in Moscow. Uncle Sergei was killed as he was driving in his carriage. Poor Ella. Bless her and help her lord. Sergei himself wasn't especially popular in Russian society, but Ella was, and everyone felt incredibly for her. 
They seem to have thought of her as some poor defenceless widow, all alone in her gilded palace, left only with her grief. But they misunderstood two fundamental aspects of her character. Her incredible strength of character and fierce faith. Why had even Kalyaev killed her husband? What could have driven this man to essentially write his own death sentence to assassinate her own dear husband? Could he yet be saved from the hellfire? This drove Ella to do something quite extraordinary. Heavily veiled and dressed all in black, she went with utmost secrecy to visit Kalyaev in his jail cell. She went in there alone, locked inside a room with the terrorist that had murdered her husband. Or at least that was everyone else's view. No one could understand why she did this. Her niece, Maria Pavlovna, wrote, quote, Two days after the murder, Ella drove off in a carriage draped in black cloth and crepe and remained away for a long time. She had gone to the prison to visit the murderer. This struck the administration into utter confusion. Nothing like it had ever happened before. No one knows to this day exactly what passed between my aunt and her husband's assassin. As Marie said, Ella didn't ever go into great detail about what she said to Kalyaev, only saying that she was concerned with his soul. We do, however, have an account from the only other person present at the meeting. Kalyaev, who had not been forewarned about her visit, wrote the following about it in a letter to his comrades. Remember, this man has no love for the Grand Duchess. He would quite happily have thrown the bomb into the carriage carrying her had he had the chance. Quote, When she came to me, all in black, with the weary step of someone overcome with grief and tears in her eyes, I did not rise to meet her, and she slumped helplessly onto the chair next to mine. You must have suffered a lot to take this decision, she said. But here I interrupted her and jumped up, very much agitated by her tears. What does it matter whether I suffered or not? Yes, I suffered, but I joined my suffering to that of a million others. Too much blood is being spilt around us, yet we have no other form of protest against a cruel government and terrible war. But why do they talk to me only after I have committed murder? Yes, it is a great pity that you did not come to see us, and that we did not know you earlier. The Grand Duchess pronounced these words without, I think, any ulterior thought. I'm going to quickly interject here. What Kelly Yaev is getting at, and will continue to get at through this letter, is a simple truth that Ella was entirely cut off from ordinary Russian people. With her charity work, she was probably closer than most Romanovs but yet she still did not understand why someone would want to kill her husband. To someone more switched on, with their ear close to the ground, it would be blindingly obvious why an anarcho-communist might want to kill the ultra-conservative brother of the Tsar. But, at least in Kalayayev's account, Ella seems to have been blind to this. Kalayayev continued, now referring to Bloody Sunday. Quote, Surely you know what they did to the workers on the 9th of January when they went to see the Tsar. Did you really think this could go unpunished? There's a terrible war of hatred being waged against the people. You declared war on the people, we took up the challenge. I will give my life a thousand times, not just once. Russia must be free. Ella replied, Do you really imagine we don't suffer? Do you really think we don't wish the good of the people? 
Yes, you are suffering now, I said, and for the good. Let's leave the good aside. We both fell silent and I sat down. The Grand Duchess was also somewhat calmer and started talking about the Grand Duke, that he had been expecting death, which is why he had left the post of Governor General, that he was such a good man. Here I again interrupted the Grand Duchess, and to spare her feelings said, Let's not talk about the Grand Duke. I don't want to discuss him with you. Yes, I can't enter into political discussions with you. I only wanted you to know that the Grand Duke forgives you, and that I will pray for you. I beg you to accept this icon in memory of me. I will pray for you. And I took the icon. For me, this was a symbol of her recognition of my victory, a symbol of her gratitude to fate for preserving her life, and her repentance for the crimes of her Grand Duke. The Grand Duchess rose to leave. I also got up. This scene between Ella and her husband's assassin is the most iconic of her life, and probably the thing she is best known for. It has cemented her reputation as being a pious, forgiving and courageous woman, someone willing to sit in the same room as her husband's killer and attempt to understand why he did what he did. It is a truly remarkable scene, and it is impossible to imagine almost any other member of the Russian royal family doing this. She clearly saw that her fate as a widow could befall many other women married into the Romanov family, and wanted to know what motivated a man to throw away his life merely so he could kill another. What she learned from all of this is not entirely clear, but it almost certainly played into what she did next. The first thing that needed to be done after all the ceremonies had been performed for Sergei's death was to take care of their wards. If you remember, after her brother-in-law Paul had run off to Paris with his new wife after being ostracised by the family, she and Sergei had taken in their children, Marie and Dmitri. Well, now that Sergei was dead, Ella became their principal guardian, sharing duties with the Tsar. Her guiding principle, as their foster mother, she said, would be, quote, May God guide and help us to bring up Marie and Dmitri as well as Sergei had begun. I will do my very best, and knowing his ideas and principles, only need to try and follow what has already been before my eyes, and warm up those tender little hearts, as true Christians and real Russians, founding all on faith and duty. She took a far greater interest in them than she had before, particularly with regard to their education and what they were reading. Famously, she banned Marie from reading the scandalous novel The Visits of Elizabeth by Eleanor Glynn, which satirised the absurdities and immoralities of British high society. Marie, of course, did what any teenager would have done when their stepmother told her not to do something, and read it anyway, delighting in her little rebellion. Marie's childhood ended at the age of 16, when she married Prince Wilhelm of Sodomanland, the second son of the heir to the Swedish throne. She would later allege that Ella had rather rushed her into this, but at the time she was very keen on the match. But equally, there is no doubting that Ella was very happy to get Marie out of the house. And with Dimitri now at cadet school, it was finally time for Ella to make the next step. Faith had always played an enormous part in Ella's life. It had been what had drawn her and Sergei together, and had been the foundation of their relationship. Now, in widowhood, it became her comfort, her fortitude. 
Although Sergei had left much of his wealth to his wards, Ella was still a fabulously wealthy woman, but she was no longer content to keep it all. She saw the society part of her life, that of dinner parties, palace balls and the like, as being over. It had ended when her husband's carriage had exploded. Her future lay somewhere else. Over the year or so following Sergei's death, she began to do something a little unusual for the time, but would have been quite normal in medieval years. She wanted to found a religious order. Her life was already beginning to resemble that of a nun. She prayed every day at the Tudor Monastery, and was dedicating almost all of her time to the sick and needy. The first thing that she needed to do to take the next step was to purchase the land necessary for her new foundation. Well, actually, the first thing to do was to give it a name, the Order of Saints Martha and Mary. This was because, in her own words, she wanted the sisters of her order to, quote, combine the lofty destiny of Mary, given to hear the words of eternal life, with Martha's service to our Lord through the least of his brethren. For those of you with dodgy Bible knowledge, Mary and Martha of Bethany were figures in the New Testament. When Jesus came to their house, Mary sat at his feet and drank in all he had to say, while Martha was preoccupied with all the preparations that were necessary when such a famous teacher as Jesus of Nazareth came to visit. Their two virtues of work and service were therefore the watchwords of Ella's order. Now, to found an order and to endow it, you needed cash. Lots of cash. Which was fortunate, because that's exactly what Ella had in abundance. Moreover, to live the monastic life, she needed to simplify it, to divest herself of most of her worldly possessions. She didn't pawn everything. Those things that had been gifts from her family, she returned rather than selling. Most of her portraits and paintings she gave to the Alexander III Museum, and many other personal trinkets were distributed amongst her close friends and family. The main thing that she did sell was her incredible collection of jewellery, at least those parts of it that she hadn't given away. This amassed more than enough money for her to break ground on the site of her new convent. The site that she chose was in Moscow, across the river from the Kremlin in an affluent part of the city. The foundation stone was officially laid in a grand ceremony on the 4th of June 1908. The guest list was headed by the Tsar and was a panoply of Russian high society, as well as many members of Ella's family. Also there was the architect, a man called Alexei Shushusev, who would later build the convent who had built the convent in a new style, meshing Art Nouveau with the traditional medieval Russian. Rather ironically, Shashusev would be the man to build quite a different house of worship a few decades later just over the river from the convent, dedicated to the man who would bring about Ella's downfall. That would be the mausoleum of Vladimir Lenin. The convent was on a site around four acres in area and would eventually consist of four elegant buildings surrounding a courtyard, with grounds full of fruit trees and flowers. These buildings would include a house of worship, accommodation for the nuns, a school for girls, and a hospital for the sick. Also in there was an apothecary shop, which distributed medicines to thousands of poor Muscovites every year. There was a soup kitchen that gave food to the hungry, 
a Sunday school dedicated to teaching the daughters of factory workers basic literacy, and an orphanage for 18 girls. As you might expect, this new convent wasn't exactly austere in terms of its decoration. The walls were decked with frescoes and full of paintings, and the buildings themselves had ornate carvings and statues built into them. This was a grand place. Ella also oversaw the design of the habits that were worn by her nuns. Traditionally, Orthodox nuns wore black, but these were rather different, consisting of pale grey wool for everyday wear and white for feast days. The construction of the convent took around four years to complete, and Ella, rather than staying in one of the many palaces in which she was entitled to live, elected to live there on what was essentially a building site. As you might expect, there were a fair few people amongst Ella's friends and family that were concerned about what she was doing, about how she was giving away most of her wealth and possessions to live as the abbess of her own order of nuns. One such warrior was the Tsar, who wrote to her expressing his concerns. In her reply, Ella goes into great detail about her new life, about the people with which she was now surrounded, and assured him that she was doing it all with her eyes wide open and knowing her own mind. She wrote, quote, One cannot believe that I alone, without any influence, decided this step, which to many seems an unbearable cross I have taken up, and which I will either regret one day, throw over, or break under. I took it up, not as a cross, but as a road full of light, God showed me after Sergei's death and which years and years before had begun in my soul. I cannot tell you when. It seems to me often that already as a child there was a longing to help those that suffer. To receive, to see heaps of people, to give receptions, dinners, balls, could not entirely fill my life. I was taken aback when a whole battle broke out to prevent me, to frighten me about the difficulties, all with great kindness and love, but with utter incomprehension of my character. I cannot say if you are right or wrong. Life and time alone will show, and certainly I am not worthy of the unboundless joy of God letting me work this way. But I will try, and he who is all love will forgive my mistakes, as he sees the wish I have of serving him and his. This passage here really sums up brilliantly where Ella's mind was at in this part of her life. Her religiosity had always been there, but before it had had to share the limelight with her other duties. Now that she had fulfilled those following Sergei's death, it was time for her to move on to her real, true calling, that of service to the sick, to the needy, and to Christ. One of her friends, Felix Yusupov, wrote in his memoirs that Ella, quote, lived in a small, simply furnished three-room house, her wooden bed had no mattress, and her pillow was stuffed with hay. The Grand Duchess slept little, a few hours at most when she was not spending the whole night by a sickbed or praying over a coffin in the chapel. Hospitals and nursing homes sent her their worst cases, and she nursed them herself. As you can see, she took her duties very seriously. Sisters of her order worked hard, caring for the sick, looking after orphans and the homeless, and making clothes for hundreds of poor children. And this, of course, was on top of their vigorous prayer regimen. Indeed, the labours were so intense that Ella had to stipulate that only women under the age of 40 could join. Older women couldn't be expected to keep up with all their duties. These extracurricular activities, 
outside of those of prayer, marked Ella's order out as almost unique within Russia. Most religious orders were closed communities, entirely focused on venerating God and not concerned with helping those beyond their walls. Ella was never going to be interested in that route. As she explained, quote, Prayer and contemplation should be the final reward of those who have given their whole strength to the service of God. Work should be the foundation of religious life, and prayer its relaxation. This was not, however, the view of the Orthodox Church at large, and so this set Ella up with a grandstand fight with its ruling council, the Most Holy Synod. They did not like what she was doing. Innovation and change have rarely been synonymous with church hierarchies. To gain acceptance, therefore, Ella had to embark on a bit of schmoozing. She visited all the key figures in the synod, talking them through why she was doing what she was doing, and pointed to other religious orders elsewhere in Europe that were taking the same approach. Even so, when she presented her petition to the synod for her order to be accepted, it was rejected out of hand. They hated everything about what Ella had done, from the design of the habits of her nuns to the whole vocational principle upon which her order was built. She went away and did more research, bringing up yet more examples of orders from the past and present that followed her philosophy, and used those as the reason for why what she was doing is not exactly revolutionary. She made also some small changes to how she did things, and tried to make everything a little more traditional. But when she tried again to petition the Synod, they told her to get lost again. For attempt number three, however, Ella played her trump card. She may have divested herself of her material possessions and left Russian society, but she was still the sister-in-law of the Tsar, and he was still seen as the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. She therefore persuaded him to overrule the council, and by imperial decree, the Order of Saints Martha and Mary was formally established in March 1910. Ella herself was now officially raised to the position of abbess by the Metropolitan of St. Petersburg, but to her nuns and the people at large, she would be henceforth known as Mother Elizabeth. Ella's life as abbess of her new order was pretty full on, but that didn't mean she'd completely left her old life behind. She was still the sister of the Tsarina and aunt by marriage to the Tsar, and therefore saw it as her duty to intervene when she believed they were straying into dangerous territory. Now, in the coming series on her sister Alex, we will go into great detail about her relationship with her favourite, the infamous Siberian preacher and cult leader Rasputin. But suffice it to say that Ella was not a fan. Her objection was not just that she saw his professed miraculous powers of healing to be sacrilegious, but she profoundly worried about the incredible influence that Alex was allowing him to have. She had never had the closest relationship with her sister, particularly when one considers their shared upbringing and lives as Romanov wives, but even she was shocked at how vehemently her counsel was rebuffed by Alex. Ella implored both the Tsar and Tsarina to dismiss Rasputin, but they refused again and again, each time getting more and more annoyed at her. 
After one particularly testy encounter, Ella wrote to her friend Zenya, the Tsar's sister, quote, Do you know how to explain this quite impossible obstinacy? May God help and hear our prayers, which we must all double. And, after all, it is in seeking him that they have gone wrong. Maybe he will pardon their pride and open their eyes. Now they are bitter and unjust and poor things, that nasty little circle of flatterers who stick to them and keep up their unbelief in all who are true to them is working hard to break our necks. She was far from alone in her opposition to Rasputin, but her sister seems to have taken great offence to her sister, the one whom perhaps she thought she could have counted on to be absolutely loyal, turning against her. Alex did not see Ella as offering honest counsel, she saw her as being one of them. One of those people who wished her family ill and opposed the only man who could keep them safe. If Alex had only listened to Ella, the history of Russia, and indeed the world, may have been very different. In the summer of 1914, Ella went on a religious progress around Russia, going on a series of short pilgrimages to various monasteries and holy sites all across the empire, from the banks of the Volga to the coast of the Barents Sea. It was while she was in Siberia that she heard the news that would change everything. Archduke Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated, and Russia was now at war. The First World War, as I'm sure you all know, was an utter catastrophe for Russia and the Romanov dynasty. The inefficiencies, incompetencies and corruption that had been exposed by the Russo-Japanese War had not been adequately addressed and when faced with quite possibly one of the greatest militaries ever assembled in the Imperial German Army, Russia crumbled. Defeat begat defeat. Millions of men became casualties at a front that suffered from appalling conditions. At least though those men were well fed, the army sucked up supplies away from the cities that saw massive food shortages, despite the fact that food and medicines were piled up at supply depots. Once again, Russian infrastructure, particularly its roads and railways, were wholly inadequate to the task. This was all, of course, awful. Ella had been insulated by her own personal popularity during the last war. This time, though, it was different. This was for two main reasons. The first was that she was German. It's never great to be from the nation that is slaughtering millions of your adopted country's men on the front lines. You're not just associated with the enemy, you're assumed to be in league with them. For being the reason that your husband, your father, your son were killed in action. The second reason, of course, was that she was a Romanov. She was associated with all the actions of the Tsar, of the Tsarina, of Rasputin, and of all their terrible, corrupt ministers. It didn't matter that she wasn't in that kind of society anymore. She was still one of them in their eyes. And now that things were so much worse, Ella couldn't get away with being thought of as different anymore. The main target of vitriol was the Empress. But as her sister, Ella could not escape the wrath of the mob. Her car was attacked by stone-throwing crowds. She was spat at in the streets, called a traitor, a Hessian witch, just like her sister. She did her best during the war, taking care of the poor, the hungry, the sick and the wounded. But this was not nearly enough 
to stem the public pressure rising against her. In the autumn of 1916, a mob attacked her convent for the first time. A rumour had spread that her brother, the Grand Duke of Hesse, had been sent by the Kaiser to negotiate a truce. Brandishing clubs and wielding cobblestones torn up from the streets outside, this mob yelled, Away with the German woman! Let's send her to the devil! They smashed windows and poured in, injuring several nuns as they tried to get away. But when the mob made for Ella's quarters, she didn't flee or cower. She threw open her doors and confronted them. And she told them, calmly but firmly, that she had no idea where her brother was. But he certainly wasn't in Russia. And could they please keep it down? They were disturbing the sick. Her bravery and fortitude bought her enough time for the police to arrive and drive away the mob. After she had assessed the damage, she went to visit some friends, who implored her to make the Tsarina see reason, to get to dismiss Rasputin and sack her incompetent, sycophantic ministers before it was too late. Probably with quite a heavy heart, on the 16th of December 1916, Ella went to see her sister Azasko Selo. She was greeted kindly but coldly by her sister, for Alex knew why she had come and had no intention on acting on what she had to say. Ella embarked on what must by now have been a very familiar speech, but Alex cut her off mid-flow, telling her that she was wasting her time and should change the subject. Ella, however, persisted. This was the reason she had come, after all. But once again, her sister interrupted, saying that if this was all she had come to say, then she'd better just go. Ella reportedly said, quote, Perhaps it would have been better if I hadn't come? Yes, Alex is said to have replied, before summoning a car to take her older sister home. When she returned to the city, she went to see her confidants, including her friend Felix Yusupov, in floods of tears. She drove me away like a dog, she is said to have cried. Poor Nikki, poor Russia. They couldn't have known it at the time, though Ellen must certainly have feared it, but it was the last time the two Hessian sisters would ever see each other. The intransigence of Alex and her husband was about to throw Russia into the bowels of revolution. Following this, Ella returned to Moscow, and so was not in St. Petersburg when Yusupov, with the help of his friends, assassinated Rasputin. It's not known for certain if Ella knew what they were all planning, but it seems inconceivable to me that she didn't have at least an inkling. As a woman of profound faith, you might have expected her to abhor such a violent act, but no. She wrote to Yusupov's mother, quote, My prayers and thoughts are with you all. God bless your son for his patriotic act. Indeed, she wrote to the Tsar begging him to be lenient to Rasputin's killers, but he refused, writing, quote, No one has the right to commit murder. I am surprised by your request. The killing of Rasputin was too little, too late to save the Romanov regime. In March 1917, under the weight of protest, riot and mutiny, the Tsar was forced to abdicate the throne. Ella was in Moscow, hard at work when it all happened, and news filtered through to her slowly and in an incomplete fashion. She knew the Romanovs had been overthrown, and that a provisional government was being formed in St. Petersburg, but she didn't know the fate of her sister and family. She didn't know that they were under house arrest, their fate uncertain. 
She wasn't surprised that this had all happened. She had warned Nikki and Alex that this might happen for years and they had ignored her. But still, she must have worried for them. But her duties kept her very busy. She insisted that business had to go on as normal in the convent. The doors must remain open, no matter what the risks. And those risks were real. On one occasion, a drunk had pushed his way in and yelled at Ella, saying that if she was no longer an imperial highness, then what was she? She replied, calmly, that she was his servant, which rather took him aback. She then tended to his sores and diagnosed him with having an ulcerous groin, warning him not to let them become gangrenous. The man did not appreciate this helpful medical advice and again demanded who the hell she thought she was. She replied, I already told you, I am your servant. Unfortunately, he was just one of many that came down to the convent to abuse and intimidate Ella. Russia was still at war with Germany, and it was still going very badly. And so thanks to her German heritage, she was still very much a target. In May 1917, two trucks filled with revolutionary mutineers descended on the convent and began to smash the place up. Just as she had done the previous year, she confronted them, inviting them to come through to the church and pray, leaving their rifles, of course, at the door. Again, not expecting this, they complied, and there followed the weirdest church service, where Ella led these men in prayer. Eventually, they left and rejoined their comrades outside. Her calm and clear thinking had once again saved the convent and all those inside. Many around Ella implored her to flee Russia. She had family across Europe, many of whom would welcome her with open arms. She was in constant danger in Russia, and since she had no children or husband, no familial ties were binding her to adopt a country. But Ella couldn't go. She had other responsibilities. To her patients, to the Sisters of the Order, and to the poor and sick of Moscow. They may have hated her, but she felt that they would never let her come to any real harm. She had dedicated the last decade of her life to serving them. Surely they would protect her. And probably, had the provisional government held on, she would have been safe. But in November 1917, a second Russian revolution brought the Bolsheviks to power. To them, Ella represented everything that they hated. She was Romanov. She was German. She was rich, or at least she had been, and she was religious. Within a week, the mobs were again at the convent's door. Ella once again confronted them and managed to drive them away, using the same tactics as she had before, but she knew she couldn't hold them off much longer. In one of the last letters that she ever wrote, she said, quote, One must fix one's thoughts on the heavenly country in order to see things in their true light, and be able to say, Thy will be done, when one sees the complete destruction of our beloved Russia. Remember that holy Russia, the Orthodox Church against whom the gates of hell shall not prevail, still exists and will always exist. Those who can believe this without a doubt will see the inner light shining through the darkness in the midst of the storm. I've been reading the Bible a good deal lately, and if we believe the sublime sacrifice of God the Father in sending his Son to die and rise again for us, we shall feel the Holy Spirit lighting our way, 
and our joy will become eternal, even if our poor hearts and earthly minds pass through the moments which seem terrible. We work, we hope, and each day we feel more and more the divine compassion. It is a constant miracle that we are alive. Pray for us, dear heart. These are the words of a woman, thoughtfully and with great clarity, accepting the fact that she would soon die for her cause. She did not long for the martyr's death. She must have worried about what would happen to the patients under her care and the women of her order if she did die. But equally she knew that if she stayed, then this would likely be her fate, and she had no intention of fleeing. They came for her, perhaps fittingly, during Easter. Two armoured cars arrived at the convent filled with red guards, and they told her that she was being removed from Moscow. They didn't say it in so many words, but she was under arrest. They gave her two hours to collect her things and say goodbye. It was an incredible emotional moment, for everyone there must have known that they would never see Ella again, and that their own futures hung in the balance. Two sisters begged the soldiers to be allowed to go with Ella, a request that was granted. As she got into one of the cars, she asked the commander, Are we being taken very far? The question was left, rather hauntingly, unanswered. As the cars drove off, the streets were lined with people crossing themselves, some on their knees, with the deepest emotion. They too knew that Ella was going to her death. She was taken first to Perm, a city in the foothills of the Ural Mountains, almost 900 miles away from Moscow. But quickly the Ural Regional Soviet decided that they wanted nothing to do with her, and so sent her on to Yekaterinburg, the city in which her sister and her family were being held. They were taken to a different house to that of Alex, but did manage to send them, through a local convent, some coffee, eggs and chocolate, gifts that heartened them in the knowledge that someone who loved them was still so close by. But they wouldn't be for long. The Russian Civil War was raging all around them, and the Western-backed white forces were closing on Yekaterinburg. Ella, her two nuns and five other Romanov princes were taken to a school on the outskirts of the city, so that they could be evacuated at a moment's notice. There, they stayed a short while, while the local Soviet pondered what to do with their prisoners. By July 1918, the orders had come from Moscow that the Romanovs were to be liquidated. On the 17th of July, Ella and the others were informed that they were to be moved on again. They had no idea that the Tsar, Tsarina and his whole family had been killed in the city only a few miles away. All they knew was that they had to pack up and move. Now the accounts of what happened next are a little confusing and contradictory, and we rely on the rather flawed eyewitness account of a man called Vasily Ryabov, a Bolshevik soldier guarding the prisoners who later confessed what happened to a white army officer. I will warn you, What he is about to describe is pretty grim. I'm not going to interrupt him, though. I will let him confess his crime in full. Quote, We tied their hands behind their backs there and then, blindfolded them and led them out to the cart, which was already waiting by the school, sat them in it and sent them off to their destination. After that, we went into the room occupied by the men. We told them the same thing as we had to the women. The young Grand Dukes, Konstantinovich and Prince Paley, also obeyed meekly. 
We took them out to the corridor, blindfolded them, bound their hands behind their backs and put them in another cart. We decided earlier that the cart should not go together. The only one who tried to oppose us was the Grand Duke Sergei Mikhailovich. Physically, he was stronger than the rest. We had to grapple with him. He told us categorically that he was not going anywhere, as he knew they would all be killed. He barricaded himself behind the cupboard, and our efforts to get him out were in vain. We only lost precious time. I finally lost my patience and shot at the Grand Duke. However, I only fired with the intention of wounding him slightly and frightening him into submission. I wounded him in the arm. He didn't resist further. I bound his wound and covered his eyes. We put him in the last cart and set off. We were in a great hurry. The dawn already heralded the morning. At last we arrived at the mine. The shaft was not very deep, and, as it turned out, had a ledge on one side that was not covered by water. First, we led Grand Duchess Ella up to the mine. After throwing her down the shaft, we heard her struggling in the water for some time. We pushed the nun, Lysista Vavara, down after her. We again heard the splashing of water, and then the two women's voices. It became clear that having dragged herself out of the water, the Grand Duchess had also pulled her lay sister out. But having no other alternative, we had to throw in the men as well. None of them, it seems, drowned or choked in the water, and after a short time we were able to hear all their voices again. Then I threw in a grenade. It exploded, and everything was quiet, but not for long. We decided to wait a little to check whether they had perished. After a short while, we heard talking and a barely audible groan. I threw another grenade. And what do you think? From beneath the ground, we heard singing. I was seized with horror. They were singing the prayer, Lord save your people. We had no more grenades, yet it was impossible to leave the deed unfinished. We decided to fill the shaft with dry brushwood and set it alight. Their hymns still rose up through the thick smoke for some time yet. When the last signs of life beneath the earth had ceased, we posted some of our people by the mine and returned to Alapayevsk by first light. Their bodies would not be discovered for three months. One of Ella's friends, Father Seraphim, was the man that had the grisly task of exhuming the bodies from the mine shaft. Stories emerged that other corpses bore the signs of Ella having tended their wounds, and that her body showed no signs of decomposition. But this was not true, sadly. The autopsy report concluded that she likely died not long after she had been thrown into the mine. Their bodies were placed in simple wooden coffins and taken to the local cathedral for burial, attended by crowds of local townspeople and many white army soldiers. They were laid to rest in the crypt, but would not be there for long, as only eight months later, the Red Army was back. The retreating whites brought the coffins with them to Lake Baikal, a town 1,500 miles away in the heart of Siberia. Six months after that, after it became clear that even that remote stronghold couldn't be held, they were taken on a dangerous train journey to Peking, now of course called Beijing in China. There they were laid to rest in the Russian church of St. Seraphim of Sarov. Pictures of the ceremony made it into the British press, where they were read by Princess Beatrice, who forwarded it on to Victoria, Ella's eldest sister. Victoria immediately began writing to anyone she knew in a position of power, 
urging them to arrange for Ella to be brought back from the east and buried, not in Peking, but in the Russian Orthodox Church of St Mary Magdalene in Jerusalem. This was, if you recall, the church of which Ella had attended the consecration nearly 30 years beforehand, and Victoria thought it far more fitting that she be buried there. She and her surviving Hessian siblings cobbled together the necessary money and influence to make it happen, accompanying the body on the last leg of the journey from Suez to the Mount of Olives. And there, finally, Ella was laid to her final rest, and she is still there to this day. In death, she was not forgotten. The Russian church canonised her as a saint formally in 1992, with her principal shrines being at her convent in Moscow, which had been looted and closed by the Bolsheviks, but then restored after the fall of the Soviet Union, and at her place of burial in Jerusalem. In 1998, in time for the 80th anniversary of her murder, her great-nephew Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, and his wife, Queen Elizabeth II, attended a ceremony at the west door of Westminster Abbey. Above it were four statues, representing truth, justice, mercy, and peace. But there were ten further recesses that had been empty for 400 years. In those spots were inserted ten 20th century martyrs. And in between the American civil rights leader Martin Luther King and Archbishop Janani Luam of Uganda, murdered by Idi Amin after criticising his regime, is Ella. I cycle past it almost every day, and I had no idea until researching this episode that she was there. It is a wonderful tribute by the country of her mother's birth to an extraordinary woman. And that is Ella's story. I hope that you enjoyed it. Next time, we will go on to tell the story of her younger sister, Alex, the last empress of Russia. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns